find gathering in from the farthest corners of the earth into the center section. Thank you. If you cannot, I understand. I'll be reading one from one scripture tonight, one, one chapter. First Samuel chapter 21. First Samuel chapter 21 and verse 1. If you have it, say amen. How many of you bring your Bibles to church? Bless you, my children. We've gotten dependent on the screen, and, that, and I'm thankful for it. 1 Samuel 21 and verse 1. I was remiss. I didn't send my scriptures in before church. I didn't do my homework. 1 Samuel 21 and 1. Then came David to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David and said unto him, Why art thou alone and no man with thee? And David said unto Ahimelech the priest, The king hath commanded me a business and hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee and what I have commanded thee, and I have appointed to my servants to such and such a place. Technically, that was not true. Because the king had appointed him a business. The king was trying to kill him. That was the business. His own father-in-law, Saul, was hunting him high and low. Now, therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or what there is present. And verse 6, so the priest gave him hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot in the day when it was taken away. And I'm skipping, skipping down to verse 8. And David said unto Ahimelech, is there, is there not here under thine hand spear or sword? For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If thou wilt take it, or take that, take it, for there is no other save that here. And David said, There is none like that, give it to me. And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul, and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David laid up these words in his heart and was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. God bless you. You may be seated. David was afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Verse 13 says, And he changed his behavior before them and feigned himself mad. Mr. Grant, have you, have you studied these scriptures before? Have you ever wondered about all this right here? He 
he changed his behavior before them and feigned himself mad in their hands and scrabbled on the doors of the gate and let his spittle fall down his beard. He was pretending to be crazy. This is David, the psalmist David. And Achish said unto his servants, Lo, you see, the man is mad. Wherefore then have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Dr. Matthew Henry says that one of the things David may have been worried about, he was carrying the sword of Goliath. Goliath was from this area. They might recognize the sword and kill him. Well, I understand all that, but let me take you to Psalms 56 and 11. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. Do you know who wrote that? The crazy guy wrote it. Let me ask you something. Have you ever done anything you wish you hadn't done? Have you ever said anything you wish you hadn't said? Boy, I have. And and maybe not as soon as you said it, but about 30 minutes later, you're like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. I've said things from the pulpit when I felt anointed and really enthused and really, and I get home and I'm, I think, I don't know if that was the Lord. Maybe that was me. I was a little upset. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me, except he was. I don't quote my son a lot, but he has some pretty cool sayings. One of them is this, well, Dad, everything was going fine till it wasn't. And then he likes to say, we wasn't having a problem at all till we did. But I've said things that I've deeply, deeply regretted. My grandfather, who was very elderly, and, and pray for Rosie and Blackie. Uh, Blackie did not get a good report today, and um, we love him. And conversing with Brother Beam today, Sister Beam is, is in and out of consciousness and not long for this world and to meet her Lord. And she is uh, going to be in heaven with Jesus. But my grandfather... And even even informative years, I was probably 18, 19, maybe I was a little older, maybe I was over 20. And my grandfather told me, he said, son, don't wait to come back and see me until they put nickels on my eyes. <laughs> it's a little disturbing phrase, but evidently it was common back in those days. Some said nickels, said some pennies, but let's don't go into that with some small ears here, but in a premonition, I looked at him and I said, Paul, I'm not ever going to see you again. You won't ever see me again. And he died not long after that. I didn't regret that, but here's what I regretted. He said, son, and he, he <laughs> last few years of his life, he'd go to sleep reading his Bible and smoking his pipe. I wonder he hadn't burned the house down. But he asked me, he said, son, do you believe in deathbed repentance? In other words, do you believe you can live your whole life like a rounder 
And then at the last few minutes of life, repent and ask God to forgive you. And I said, no, I do not. And I said that because I was very young. I had all the answers. You've heard me say this. I should have been the president. 20 years old, I had all the answers. I knew everything. It was black and white. There was no gray. There was no, I knew very little. When I told him that, I've regretted it ever since because I'm going to tell you what I've come to realize. I believe in repentance. I believe in deathbed repentance. I believe in any kind of repentance. Any time that you can, God will honor sincere, heartfelt repentance. But I wish I hadn't said that. I ever been afraid? Anybody ever been afraid? I, I asked one guy, I said, I said, well, I told him, I said, everybody's afraid of the dark. He said, I'm not afraid of the dark. I said, you just hadn't been where it was dark enough. Back in our hometown, we had guys who they're all proud of their four-wheel drive trucks. And they'd have, they said, I ain't never been stuck. You know what I told them? You just ain't never been where it's bad. Because I've been with guys like that when they'd have the whole axle torn out from under their truck and couldn't even winch them out. And the water, the last thing is, as the water is going over their sinking truck, I say, well, at least one thing, you ain't never been stuck till now. We're all afraid sometimes. We're all afraid sometimes. We all give in to fear sometimes. It's, it's a little funny, some of the things that we're afraid of. Uh, Brother Robert Freeman, a man in the church where we grew up, he's probably 6'2", very rugged businessman, terrified of grasshoppers. Well, that's funny to me. A grasshopper, grasshopper, you catch them, use them for fish bait, or you, you, know, or you let them twirl around, or you put them in your sister's hair. They're not a fearsome thing. But for some reason, he was afraid of anything that could jump on him and grab him. Cricket would run him out of the room. My wife had an aunt, Aunt Lane, who was terrified of worms. <laughs> they went to a cornfield and buying buying some corn. They used places in the country you could go pick a basket full, and they'd pay you, and you'd pick. Well, she had gotten a little corn worm on her, her shoulder. It was about that long, a little corn worm. Inchworm. Some people call them cut worms. And the lady had a real slow accent. She said, well, there's a worm on your shoulder. <laughs> what Teresa described, I ain't laying through the corn, the bucket, and the peas, and everything, screaming, running for our life. Well, you might not be afraid of worms. You may not be afraid of a cricket, but you probably are afraid of, of something. And from time to time, we're all afraid. And it might make us do ridiculous things, things that we regret. But I have good news. A momentary lapse or a momentary or temporary setback does not define who we are. This man was the giant killer. Can I remind you that he killed a giant Goliath with a stone? The Bible says that he had four more, 
And from what we understand, Goliath had four brothers or cousins that were giants too. He was ready to take on the whole pack. This is the man who stood when Israel, the army shook and he said, I come to you in the name of the Lord. And slew him. The shepherd boy. This is a shepherd boy who the Bible says he killed a lion and a bear because they're going to eat his little sheep. And he's afraid. He's afraid of Achish so much that he acts like he's insane. Really, well, I'm just, I don't have any respect for him. Oh, yeah? You ever been afraid to see somebody in a situation to try to act like you're somebody else? Or try to act like you're not you? Or try to act like you don't know what they're talking about, or maybe you don't talk about. Now, there are some of us where situations happen, and we don't remember. My wife's, do you remember? And I'm like, oh, I don't remember. I don't remember. She can remember things. Unbelievable. I literally could not tell you what I had to eat two days ago. My mind is such that I don't keep stuff. I don't keep information. I mean, I know my birthday. I still know my name. I know my social security number. But I don't, she knows, she knows all kinds of stuff. And can remember, how many remember a little bit things from your childhood when you were three years old? Four years old? Five? I have vague memories when I was six. I remember you could get a knee-high belly washer, a red one, for six cents or for a nickel. I remember that. I don't remember a whole lot of stuff. But some of us aren't playing. Some of us are a little bit lacking in the memory department. But this man, this man that the young people in Israel and Judah would sing and say, David, Saul has killed his thousands, but David's killed his ten thousands. Well, boy, he don't look like a killer right now, does he? He's acting crazy. But it didn't condemn him for the rest of his life for being a coward. Simon Peter was a coward. He denied the Lord. But history says that when it came time for him to die, he said, don't crucify me like my Lord. Crucify me upside down. I'm not worthy to die like he did. And before, in front of a little girl, I tell you, I don't know him. And the Bible says he cursed. I don't know. I don't know the man. Because we all have failure. But this didn't define. It didn't define who David was. And it wasn't the last time he failed. The truth is we're all people. There was only one perfect man, and that was Jesus Christ. None of us are perfect. You say, well, no, I'm pretty much, I'm pretty incredible. Yeah, you're a legend in your own eyes. <laughs> there was a stupid song on the radio years ago, Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. Well, that's baloney. But David, after all of this, 
after all of this, he became the king of Judah, and then he became the king of Israel and united the whole, all of the 12 tribes. He's the one that conquered Jerusalem. He brought back the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He made a covenant. God made a covenant with David promising that his throne will last forever. The wackadoo drill, dribbling down his beard and scratching on the door? Yes. It was just a temporary thing because God lets us repent. David defeated the Philistines. God called David a man after his own heart. What about Bathsheba? Yeah, I don't know. It was a bad thing. And her husband. But David repented. And God said that he was a man after God's own heart. Well, I don't, well, you don't get a vote. I don't get a vote. I know people who are jealous of the of the thief on the cross. He was a scallywag. He's dying. He's got minutes, maybe hours to live, and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What does that mean? He never said he was sorry for anything, I guess his attitude. And the Lord said, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Well, that's not fair. <laughs> the Lord forgives and cleanses who he wants to. But he always repented and returned to God. David defeated Moab. Ammon, Syria, brought lasting peace to Israel. Did you know that David, 2 Samuel 24 and 10, says that David offered himself as a sacrifice to stop a deadly plague that was striking down the children of Israel and said, God, just kill me. Take me. Spare them. David, and this is after this, is the one who received a vision on Mount Moriah on how to build God's sacrificial altar. God gave David the plans for the temple. And David added the music and organized the service schedule for the Levites and the priests. But God gave him the plans for the temple. Now, he did say you can't build it because you got blood on your hands. You're a man of war. But then David anointed his son Solomon, the king of Israel, and it was the beginning of the Davidic dynasty that reached fulfillment in Christ the king. When Brother, Brother Gidrose was with us, he, he went home and we visited with them a long time. They're sweet, sweet people. And so I don't remember if I told him this or if I've told you before. I don't have Alzheimer's. I do have part-timers. And so I told somebody this, maybe it was you. Guess what? You get to hear it again. We're all people. It doesn't matter how wonderful you are as a Christian. You still have feelings as a parent as a daughter, as a son, as a grandma, grandpa, as you, you still have feelings about relationships, people that you work with. And so God's anointing can be on somebody, and it can be so obvious. 
and they can mess up terribly. I've told young ministers many times, wait as long as you can to get a ministerial license because until you get one and it's a local situation, you can you can show out and throw have a temper tantrum and and pout and hurt somebody's feelings and do and do some stuff and we can fix it. You can repent and act like you got good sense. But once you get a license, they'll have you up in front of a board of regents. It might not go so well. Because in everybody's life, there's a time of, of development and trying to and trying to find yourself. Well, uh, we were talking about Brother Jeff Arnold and Brother Brother Jeff Arnold, who is no doubt one of the finest preachers I've ever heard. He is a preaching machine. He he says a whole lot of junk, and he he has a Bronx inflection and if you didn't know you would think he's a little bit crazy but he's brilliant wonderful preacher but I remember when he was Freddie the Frog's daddy he started off as a children's evangelist you remember those days honey called him the balloonatech he could make all kind of animals balloons he dressed up like a clown he loved the kids and he was just this funny guy only oh, loved to do magic loved to do magic and so Brother Kraft had him to come. And, but there came a day, there came a day when Brother Kraft said, well, you know, why don't you just preach in big church? And it changed, it changed, it changed our life in Jackson. And it changed his life. Because he was slung out of a catapult into a big world of Pentecost. Because, I mean, he preached the house down. And come to find out this children's ministry nut was an amazing, amazing gospel preacher. And so he preached for us many years. And so we lived through, he and Sister Patty's, they were married, lived through their, their formative years of evangelizing. I remember they came to the church, held an extended revival, and he had an old wore-out motorhome pulling a little Volkswagen bug behind it. And then I remember one night they all, they told him they were going to the Mayflower restaurant to eat. Well, in the middle of it, everybody else changed their mind, but they couldn't, they forgot to tell him. Well, nobody had cell phones. It hadn't been invented. We didn't have anything like that. We didn't even have pagers. How old are you? I'm old. Oh. They may have email. Well, why didn't you just text him? Well, just, just didn't have a phone. And it hurt his feelings. Now, think about this. Jeff, Jeff Arnold, Uncle Jeffrey, amazing preacher. And he got his feelings hurt. And he didn't just get his feelings hurt a little. He was mad. And I happened to be standing right there at the third row in the front, when Sherry Lane, as Brother Kraft's daughter, came over and said, "Brother Arnold, my daddy wants you to tell you we're all go we're all going to the Mayflower tonight to eat," and Jeff Arnold said, "You tell Brother Kraft no more Mayflowers for me." And I'm like, 
Oh, wow, this is good. No, this is not good. Oh, this is good. He was hot. No more Mayflowers for me. Brother Kraft had to go over and pet on him and talk to him. Now, Brother Oracle, this, and this man is astounding, but he was also human in flesh and blood. Brother Arnold went on to preach meetings everywhere, but he preached so hard and so loud and so so driven till he got nodules on his vocal cords. The doctors told him, if you don't stop preaching right now and do something else for six months, you're through preaching forever. You're going to ruin your voice. You know what happened? Brother Kraft found out, called him. Jeffrey, come over here. Come over here and stay with us. And for six months, Brother Kraft paid him as if he was preaching every service in FPC. And all he did was sit back there in the back and come to church. And that's when he found out what all of us knew. Brother Kraft had a very, very big heart. And he loved Brother Arnold. He didn't, <laughs> he didn't ditch him at the Mayflower on purpose. And I'm really, I'm really thinking I may have already told you this. But I'm not going to be long tonight, so bear with this other one. I was, and I told Ronnie this, I was in church in Kansas City one night during choir practice. If I already told this here, baby, okay, well, good, because if you don't remember, I sure I don't have a prayer remembered if you don't remember. But there was a, one of our ushers, a big red-headed man by the name of, of Russell. His name wasn't Archie, but he, you believe they named that royal baby Archie? Oh, there you go. So, Brother Russell comes in, big six two six three, big old sweet, great man. But he comes down a row of four or five guys sitting there, and they had an old pew behind the back wall, and he shakes hands with everybody. How you doing, brother? How you doing, brother? For some reason, he skipped Brother Medlin. Brother Medlin sitting there. He skipped him. It, it wasn't on purpose. Well, Brother Medlin was... Uh, had been in the war and had a plate in his head right here. Had been severely injured, prisoner of war. And sometimes when things got hot, weather got hot, that plate got hot, he got a little bit unspiritual. And I guess the organ music was throbbing in that plate, and he says out loud, I wish somebody would stick a corn cob in that organ. Brother brother Russell, he was a great man. He didn't know anything was wrong. He didn't realize he had skipped Brother Medlin and didn't shake his hand. And he turned around and said, oh, Brother Medlin, and slapped him. Just kind of, oh, Brother Medlin. And when he did, Brother Medlin came up from there and beat the living stew out of him. I'm saying it nice. He, it was a beat down. Brother Russell's not trying to fight. He's trying to hold him. And Medlin, <laughs> boy, we's having church at 40th and Harrison. Wow! What broke the fight up, there was a little man there in the church. His name was Ernie Forgey. He was my Sunday school teacher. He was an ex-boxer. Sailed, he was in the choir. Jumped out of the choir, ran to the back, two hits. Boom! 
boom, both those big men are on the floor. What broke up the fight? And Sister Sister Black, she ran and got my dad. <laughs> she scared death. Well, you would have been kind of, you'd have at least been, yes, you, you'd have been concerned. She was scared. Made my dad stand guard in front of the door to protect Brother Black from these, I don't know what she thought this was going to do to him, but the police took Madeline to jail and an ambulance took the other guy, took him to the hospital, and, brother, we were having church. You said, well, how, how could that happen? Well, number one, let me give you some advice. Because the Bible, it does say if someone slaps you on one side of your face to turn the other cheek. Let me give you some advice on that right there. Uh, don't be the slapper or the slappy. Because as Brother Watkins used to say, where we come from in Mississippi, they slap each other where we come from. And you might catch somebody with their Holy Ghost a little bit low level. Don't slap anybody and don't slap anybody back and but we're all we're all very 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 human very human this is uh this is not a good good example but my grandson Aiden I don't know if it's the age or if it's temperament but he can go from being depressed and just <laughs> you know how kids say oh never have no fun <laughs> never <laughs> and everybody else is getting the <laughs> big old thing. He's taller than me. Fishing with him. This is what happened. I know I told you this. I'm going tell you again. I have a reason. There's a reason in my madness. He says, Papa, I can't catch these people. I don't know how to catch one anymore. He's caught dozens and dozens. I can't I said, well, it's because those aren't bass. Those are brim. They're very small. They have a little mouth. I said, you keep throwing, and in a minute you're going to feel one go, Buck. and you feel pick it up a little, see if you got some tension on it, or if it moves, reel down and yank him, and he caught one a minute. Then he caught another one. Ha, <laughs> ha, He's doing like this. <laughs> then he caught another one. Then he caught one really big. Some of you have seen the picture. He's a whopper. Next time he throws it out, he says, Papa, watch and learn. So he can go, in five minutes, he can go from utterly depressed, there's no fish in the lake, to he thinks he's on the pro fishing tournament circuit. But we all have these. <laughs> have you ever been a little bit depressed? It's like you're sitting like, wait a minute, how come I feel? What? What? What's causing this? It's because you're a human being. And we all have fear. We all have fear. David was afraid. But what, what we have to do is work through our fear and trust the Lord. I trust him. I don't trust me. In fact, I don't even like me. <clears throat> Did you know there's a scripture in the Bible that says that if your heart condemn you, and mine does all the time. I mean, I don't really want to admit. I, I don't, I'm not saying I hear voices. All I'm saying is I'm a very reflective person. Get up in the morning, look at the mirror, whoa. And I think things like, you're disgusting. But I don't say it out loud, and I don't answer myself. I took a nap this afternoon. 
I went in there in the living room, and uh, Sister Grant's sitting in there. They're having a cup of tea or whatever is that, that you know, whatever it is that girls do for their little darling. And I said, y'all look beautiful. And she says, oh, you don't. And I didn't because I looked like, I looked like I stuck my finger in a light socket, hair going every way but the right way. All of us, all of us are very human. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm on the way to closing. Let me read something to you interesting. I love to gather stuff up and take it out on you guys. You don't know this. You don't know this, but you owe your life to a man by the name of Stanislav Petrov. How many ever heard of Stanislav? Some of you are well-read. Who knows Stanislav Petrov is? Do you know who he is, honey? You don't? You enjoy the life that you have today because of him. I'd love to tell him thank you and shake his hand, but he's, he's passed away. September 26, 1983, Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov was looking at his computer screen when he receives an alert in large red letters that the United States of America has launched five Minutemen ICBMs towards the Soviet Union. And the screen is flashing and says, it's a high reliability that we're at war with America. Now, his, his protocol called for him to report this, and when he did, the Soviet nuclear doctrine would have a full nuclear retaliation, no double check, nothing. it's just, and he felt fear in his heart. would have been the end of the world as we know it. They've estimated 300 million people in the first hour would be dead. And part of his fear was fear of the United States. And how dare they? And I've got, but he somehow got a hold of himself. He was neither Republican nor Democrat nor Independent. He was a Russian, in case you didn't catch that. And here's what he did. He reasoned with himself, because for the response time, they only have minutes. And he said, well, wait a minute. If there's five missiles coming towards the Soviet Union, they knew that the United States at that time had 23,000 nuclear missiles. Why are they only shooting five? And he overcame his fear, and not just of the bombs and not just of us, because he knew if he made a mistake, it would be the end of life as we know it. But he also knew that he was in trouble no matter what he did, and, and he was right. He, didn't, he did not report it. And in just a little while, 15 or 20 minutes, 
They found out that it was a false alarm. The system mistook the sun's reflection off of clouds for a missile. For his reward, he was arrested by the Soviets, the Russians, and interrogated mercilessly because when he didn't report what he thought he knew to be the truth, then he became a traitor to his company, his country. Now, they didn't keep him in prison, and he lived out his natural life, but they never trusted him again. What if he had given in to that fear? And you say, wow, I'm glad that's never happened before. I'm not going to give you all of the times that it has happened, but I am going to give you one more. Three years before, June the 3rd, 1980, 2.30 in the morning, our North American Air Defense Command, NORAD, deep in the Cheyenne Mountains in Colorado, issued an urgent warning the Soviet Union had just launched a nuclear attack on the United States. He said, well, what happened? Air Force ballistic missile crews removed their launch keys from the safes. Bombers ran to their planes. Fighter planes took off to search the skies. They were prepared to order every airborne commercial airliner to land. Our national security advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, was asleep in Washington, D.C. when his phone rang. His military aide, General William Odom, called to inform him that 220 missiles had been launched from Soviet submarines and were headed towards Washington, D.C. A retaliatory strike would have to be ordered quickly. Washington could be destroyed within minutes. Odom called right back and said, Sir, I have confirmation and it's changed. There aren't 200 and something. There are 2,200 Soviet missiles coming. Over 2,000 missiles are coming. They will be here in moments. Brzezinski decided not to wake up his wife, preferring that she die in her sleep. And as he prepared to call Jimmy Carter, recommended American counterattack, he decided to not do it while he was afraid. I don't know what he did. I don't know if he drank a cup of coffee or went in there and then some knee bends. I don't know what he did. But he sat there. Don't you know that was lonely and frightening at 2.30 in the morning? And just before he picks up the phone to call the president, he gets another phone call, and this is what it says. Sir, I apologize. It was a false alarm. An investigation later found that a defective computer chip in a communications device at NORAD had generated the erroneous warning. A chip that cost 46 cents to replace. And the only thing that kept us again from an unthinkable tragedy was a man who had to have been terrified, but who sat down and got a hold. Everybody's afraid, darling. Everybody's afraid. 
Sometimes you just work through your fear. You say, well, I wish I was brave. Some people are brave. They're not brave. They just do what they have to do. They're scared. They're scared little boys and scared little girls, but they do what they have to do. They work through their fear. I want to read, read to you about a man by the name of James Harrison. He lives in Australia. They call him the man with a golden arm. They found out when he was about 20 years old that he had a unique disease-fighting antibody in his, in his bloodstream that was used to develop an injection called anti-D. And this is a disease condition where a pregnant woman's blood actually starts attacking her unborn baby's blood cells. Can, rain, can result in brain damage, death. Thousands, hundreds of thousands have died. This man is responsible, directly responsible, for saving 2.4 million babies' lives in Australia because of his blood type. Now, doctors are not exactly sure why he has this blood type, but here's what one said about him. Every bag of blood is precious, but James's blood is particularly extraordinary. His blood is actually used to make a life-saving medication given to moms who are at risk. Every batch of anti-D blood that's ever been made in Australia has come from James's blood. 17% of all women in Australia are at risk. So, well, so what? So what? That's a big deal. Well, well, I could do that. I'd do that. Would you really? I would give blood a couple times, too. And I'm not trying to be funny. I, I, I hate needles. I'm afraid of needles. I'm afraid of needles. I'm afraid of really mean-looking red walls. Little bit afraid of clowns. Always have been. I don't trust clowns. Anyway, but this man, he's 81 years old now, and they're making him retire. Because by law in Australia, you can't give blood after you're 81 years old. I don't know the scientific reasons. But for 60 years, since he was age 20, he has gone every week. That's right, Chris. You, you know what I'm saying. Every week for 60 years because there was such a desperate need. And I, and I confess to you, I do it a couple times. But see the needles like taking like taking an insulin injection. Oh, you it's little bitty tiny needle. The needles that they take your blood sample with, they ain't little bitty needles. And I've had to give blood, I have to give it every three months to a doctor. And you know what? Sometimes I get a skilled, a really skilled nurse, or I can't think of the people who, you know who I mean, they take your blood. They're not vampires, but they, they take your, your blood. 
and and I've been I've come, I've come in there and be mean to me. Okay, sit down right there, honey child. Sit down. You sit right there. You and take your blood, and you don't even know they have stuck you. But because they're good, what I thought was so thank you. That was good. I don't mean it was. I want to see you every day, but thank you. It didn't hurt much. But I've also had them that couldn't find the veins and couldn't find the arteries. If you can't find mine, you're not very good. I told one one time, I said, darling, this is your third try. You don't hit oil this time. We're going to get somebody else. Oh, I'm sorry. Then it made them nervous, and they stuck me worse. And I don't like needles. I don't like needles. But I, I would, if it's going to save somebody's life, I would do it. I do it every now and then. You know this man has to be terrified. It showed a picture of him giving blood, and he didn't look that happy to me. Let's let's stand together. Can you imagine? Could you give a commitment like that? That 52 times a year for 20 years, you're going to go let them draw blood out of you when you don't have to and overcome the fear. They were saying that when, it said when most people retire, they get a gold watch. <laughs> they said he deserves so much more. And it's really, it's really sad. The last statement of this article. Talking about when he retires, it says now that Harrison has given his last blood donation in Australia. In Australia, you can't donate blood past the age of 81. This doctor's name was Falkenmeyer. He said, we all hope that somebody with similar antibodies in their blood will step up and donate. And there are other people. It, it's a tiny, tiny percentage. There are other people in Australia who have the same antibody, but they haven't come forward. Do you really blame them? Well, yes, I'm yeah. That's a that's a big commitment right there. We all fail. We're all afraid. We all make mistakes. But it doesn't have to be fatal. Look the Lord the Lord's faithful even when we're not faithful. And he forgives us. All we have to do is repent and say, Lord, I'm gonna do better. I'm going to do I'm going to do better. I want you to help me. I got a call from brother Huey Royer or a text message. It's not really technically right, but that's what that's how a lot of us communicate. Sent me a text message. He said, "Are you okay?" I said, "Well, that's a relative thing, but I'm, <laughs> I'm okay as much as I ever am. What do you mean?" He said, "Well, here there's a big tornado just touched down." The weather's really bad, and he told me, I don't know if you've seen this, honey, but the, the new pastor in Dangerfield went there a few days ago. Great people. The next, Was it the next week? His wife was rushed to the emergency room, had to put a stent in her heart. Very sick. And Brother Royer just told me, he said, I'm watching it on Facebook or, or something, and he said, his house in Dangerfield is just about to flood. 
from all the rain and the swollen rivers. And I know he must be afraid, and his wife is sick. We're all, we're all afraid. We have to put our faith in the Lord. Sometimes you have to put your faith in the Lord and grit your teeth too. You say, well, can I be spiritual with gritted teeth? I have for 68 years. Jesus, I love you through gritted teeth, and you just keep <laughs> you keep walking on. You keep trusting the Lord. Let's pray together. Would you mind? Let's pray for this little pastor. Good man, sweet people. Lord, we ask you right now, we ask you for mercy, for strength. Courage this little pastor, the church in danger field. Lay your hand of protection on him, Lord, and I know that you can take all kinds of terrible things and turn it into a blessing. And I thank you, Lord, for your tender mercy. And I thank you, Lord, and I thank you for this great gospel. I thank you for all these brave little people come out on a thunderstormy night and everybody said amen, because I'm talking about you. <laughs> but just remember, David, when he's acting crazy because he's scared, he was still the man of God. God still had anointed him. God had still called him. The Lord doesn't see us where we are now. He sees us where we're going to be. He sees us what we can be, what he wants us to be. Shake hands. God bless you. Shake hands and be friendly. May the Lord bless you. And, oh, by the way, brother and sister Royer will be with us this Sunday. They will be with us the next Sunday. And brother Ashcraft will be with us the last Sunday of May. And, no, I'm not giving brother Delat what he wants. Brother Ashcraft called me today. <laughs> God bless.